0: This is broadcast producer Desi Doyan. We're off today, so please enjoy this encore presentation of the broadcast that was originally recorded on December 22nd, 2021.
1: Are you willing to tell the select committee what you know about
2: events leading up to, during... I've been clear all along. I've got
0: nothing to hide. I've been straightforward all along.
2: Oh, hello, Jim Jordan from October... <laughs> That's why. I got the feeling that something right no I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the
0: right Here I
2: am, stuck in the middle with you I am From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internet's on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling-ish edition of the (laughs) Bradcast. Hello, Desi Doyen.
0: Hey, action-packed.
2: You did not think that 2021 was going to give up the ghost easily, did you? (laughs) I did not. Well, uh, as usual, some breaking news just before airtime today sort of throws everything off a little bit, but I will get to my guest today shortly, come hell and or high water and i will ask her about some of this breaking accountability news which has sort of been breaking all week even as i have not been able to catch up with it uh with omicron and everything else going on at the same time and in fact it's kind of a big deal on monday let's start there the bipartisan u.s house select committee investigating the january 6 attack on the u.s capitol Donald Trump's last desperate attempt to steal the 2020 election by throwing his supporters at the U.S. Capitol, essentially, in hopes of obstructing the official joint session of Congress that was meeting to certify the Electoral College vote that day, that committee in the U.S. House has now turned its focus onto one of its own. At least as of Monday, it began. A sitting member of Congress, for the first time, On Monday, the January 6th committee asked Congressman Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, a member of the far right Freedom Caucus from Pennsylvania, who has sort of flown under the radar. You're forgiven if you've not heard of him until now. Uh, Under the radar, despite being every bit as far right as folks like Jim Jordan or Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rest, uh, they asked Scott Perry for information about the attack on the Capitol. It was the first time that the committee has publicly turned in its uh, probe toward a sitting member of Congress. The request, and it wasn't a subpoena, it was a request, said that the panel wanted to ask Perry about his text communications with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, His alleged involvement in efforts to hijack the DOJ in advance of January 6th to keep Trump in office and the congressman's involvement in conspiracy theories around Dominion voting machines. That request in a very polite letter came from the uh, panel's chair, Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi. Uh, It was a letter, a request, not a subpoena. Perry, along with other far-right House Republicans like Congressman Jim Jordan and Mo Brooks and Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, they stoked rage at the evidence-free myth that the 2020 election was stolen. And they met with Donald Trump and his attorneys in an effort to contest the Electoral College certification on January 6th. There is a lot that they know. But the request to Perry notes that he played a specific role in the effort to manipulate the DOJ into helping to try to help keep Trump in power. Specifically, the letter from uh, Chair Thompson said, quote, we have received evidence from multiple witnesses that you had an important role in the efforts to install Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Now, that was a scheme that only failed when the actual acting attorney general at the time, Jeffrey Rosen, and a bunch of other top DOJ officials indicated to Donald Trump that they would all resign en masse if the department was decapitated in order to put Jeffrey Clark in place to carry out a scheme to tell, to lie to swing state legislatures that the DOJ had found evidence of fraud. In the 2020 election and that those legislature legislators should meet to choose electors for Trump, even though the voters did not vote for those electors, they voted for Joe Biden's electors. It was, to put it mildly, a very big deal, and it came extraordinarily close to having actually played out just before the January 6th joint session of Congress to certify the Electoral College vote. Now, Thompson's letter uh, to Perry also noted his communications with the White House, including texts with Mark Meadows, which presumably the committee already has in its possession since Meadows turned over about 9000 pages of documents before deciding that, oh, you know what, he didn't want to cooperate anymore with the committee. And uh, he preferred instead, I guess, to be held in contempt of Congress and face potential jail time instead. That is what Mark Meadows is now looking down the barrel of for the moment. So that was Monday, this letter to Perry. By Tuesday, Congressman Perry made clear that he had no intention of voluntarily cooperating with the committee. Uh, The committee, uh, he said on Twitter On Twitter, he said, uh, quote, I decline this entity's request. He called them an entity, (laughs) uh, claiming that, uh, quote, the radical left was desperate, quote, desperately seeking distraction from their abject failures and that the House committee was, quote, illegitimate. Now, I'm not sure that committee vice chair Liz Cheney is a member of the radical left, uh, but he, he, failing to describe the committee as a committee, calling them instead an entity, underscores his belief that the entire thing is somehow illegitimate. The committee, his
0: attempted claim that it's correct. illegitimate, even though it isn't.
2: Well, the committee responded within a few hours, noting that, uh, quote, multiple federal courts had rejected similar claims from former President Trump that it lacked a legitimate purpose and said that the panel would consider seeking the information they needed from Perry, quote, using other tools. Other tools, one would presume, would be a subpoena to a fellow sitting member of Congress to testify before a legitimate House committee. Uh, that That subpoena has not yet come. It may be coming soon. But while Perry was the first sitting member of Congress to receive such a polite request from the committee on Wednesday, there was another Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio has now also been called in by the panel requesting an interview and information from him and I. There's reason to believe he will. If we take him at his word, there's reason to believe Jim Jordan will be more than happy to come in and speak to the uh, to the committee. In the uh, in the letter uh, to Jordan, Chairman Thompson said that they want the lawmaker to provide information surrounding his communications with then President Trump on January 6th and about Trump's efforts to challenge the results of the 2020 election. In other words, to steal the 2020 election, AP. Uh, the letter reads, we understand that you had at least one and possibly multiple communications with President Trump on January 6th. We would like to discuss each such communication with you in detail. The panel is also seeking information regarding Jordan's meeting with Trump and members of his administration in November and December of 2020 and in early January of 2021, quote, about strategies for overturning the results Of the 2020 election. The letter goes on to say that the committee is also interested in any discussions Jordan may have had during the time regarding the possibility of presidential pardons for people involved in any aspect of the Capitol attack or the planning for the two rallies that took place that day. Now, we already know that several of the planners of those rallies are already cooperating with the committee. And I suspect the committee already knows a whole lot about this, so they will know if Jordan lies to them, if, of course, he has the courage to show up. But why wouldn't he? Thompson writes that Jordan has already publicly signaled a willingness to cooperate with the panel's efforts, citing the lawmakers' quote from an October rules committee hearing when Jordan declared, I've said all along I have nothing to hide.
1: I guess are you willing to tell the select committee What you know uh, about events leading up to
2: during I've been clear all along. I've got nothing to hide. I've been straightforward all along. There you go. He's been straightforward all along. Nothing to hide. Now we will see if that is true. Will he agree to talk to the committee, unlike Perry, if he's got nothing to hide? As the New York Times reported this week, the House committee now appears to have moved from plans to simply report on what actually happened on January 6th to making criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. Got anything to hide now, Jim Jordan? As the Times reports, as the House committee investigators sifted through troves of documents... Metadata, interview transcripts. They began to focus on evidence of criminal conduct by President Donald J. Trump or others that they could send to the Justice Department. The question of criminality, uh, the Times notes, goes far beyond contempt of Congress referrals that the House has already sent to the DOJ for folks like Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows for their refusal to cooperate with the probe, though those alone could end up, you know, given those guys a couple of years in jail. Investigators for the committee are now looking into whether a range of crimes were committed, including whether Trump and his allies obstructed Congress by trying to stop the certification of electoral votes. That's something we already knew because Liz Cheney came out a couple of times and said it.
1: Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes.
2: Well, if he did, that would be a crime. But they're also looking at whether there was wire fraud by Republicans who raised millions of dollars off assertions that the election was stolen despite knowing that the claims were not true. The Times reports, that is interesting, wire fraud by Republicans who knew that the election fraud claims were not true, a claim that might be made by a committee with access to a whole lot of inside information like email and text messages and testimony from hundreds of witnesses to date. In November, for example, the committee subpoenaed the chair of Trump's uh, 2020 campaign, Bill Stepien, Along with that subpoena, the committee uh, sent Stepian a letter saying, as manager for the 2020 reelection campaign, you oversaw all aspects of the campaign and supervised the conversion of the presidential campaign to an effort focused on stop the steal messaging and fundraising for that. That messaging included the promotion of certain false claims related to voting machines, despite an internal campaign memo in which campaign staff determined that such claims were false, according to the letter to Stepien at the time. Behind the scenes, the committee's day to day work is being carried out now by a team of 40 investigators and staff members, including former federal prosecutors The panel reportedly has obtained more than 30,000 records and interviews with more than 300 witnesses, including about a dozen just last week, whom committee members say provided, quote, key testimony. I think it's fair to say that the committee knows a lot at this point, and anyone who tries to lie to them will be in trouble for, for exactly that, even if not more. Lying to Congress is a felony offense that a number of Trumpers from his uh, former 2016 uh, campaign chair, Paul Manafort, to uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, to his buddy Roger Stone, they have all been convicted of of doing exactly that, lying to federal officials, lying to investigators during Trump's own administration before they were eventually pardoned by him. Although congressional investigators have no powers to actually charge a crime, their ability to subpoena documents and compel witnesses to testify allows them to reveal new details about events. And at times, that process leads to witnesses disclosing potential criminality about themselves or others. When that occurs, Congress can make a criminal referral to the Justice Department to increase pressure on the department to open investigations. So far, Attorney General Merrick Garland has avoided public statements about any of these issues and whether the DOJ is looking at them. So far, they have uh, prosecuted about 700 people, but they were all folks that were, you know, on the grounds at the Capitol that day, breaking into it, breaching barricades busting windows, beating up police. It remains unclear whether DOJ prosecutors are now trying to build cases against people further up the political hierarchy or connecting the attack to Trump himself and the aides and supporters who worked with him to overturn the results, something that is now directly in the bullseye of the U.S., the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee. They are working uh, uh, toward forcing the hand of the DOJ, it seems, to do exactly that. Will it work? We'll see. But yes, I'll say it again. The walls are closing in on Donald Trump and friends. Let's see if our guest today agrees. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be joined to discuss that and much, much more in a bit of a year-end wrap-up of sorts as 2021, the best year since 2020, comes to a close. The great... Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Hullabaloo joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an Encore presentation of the Bradcast. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Yeah, cannot say bye-bye bye bye to 2021 fast <laughs> enough. Uh, and I'm sure 2022 will be. Well, anyway, the uh, the year end news with the rise of Omicron and the apparent fall of Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda just before Christmas has not been good in too many respects. In too many others, however, it is not nearly as bad as I believe it's being portrayed by the corporate media, leading to an undeserved plummet in Joe Biden's approval ratings. It's kind of a vicious circle. The media highlight bad news and downplay or ignore the good. The public reacts negatively in opinion polls. The media reports on those opinion polls turning south. And in turn, the opinion polls fall farther, offering a rather skewed outlook on what's actually going on in the country that Republicans applaud as it turns out to be a self-enforcing feedback loop. Against the Democrats. We've seen this pattern now again and again during Democratic presidencies in particular. In the meantime, while there is certainly much for non-Republicans to fret about at year's end, the news is not all that bad, even if many fewer Americans actually know about the good news, which corporate media simply does not focus on because, well, I guess if it bleeds, it leads. For example, as terrifying as the rise of Omicron is, on Thursday, the FDA approved, uh, authorized the first COVID-19 antiviral pill in the U.S. to protect against severe disease. The oral drug from Pfizer will be prescribed at first for use in adults and children age 12 and up with mild to moderate COVID who are at risk for severe disease or hospitalization, according to the FDA. The authorization marks, quote, a major step forward in the pandemic. According to the director of the agency's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research in a statement, this authorization provides a new tool to, co- to combat COVID-19 at a crucial time in the pandemic as new variants emerge and promises to make antiviral treatment more accessible to patients who are at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19, she said. While the pill from Pfizer is not a replacement for vaccinations, they add an easily administered treatment to help keep people at high risk of severe illness out of the hospital. Pfizer's CEO said in a statement Wednesday that the company is ready to begin delivery of the drug to the U.S. quote, immediately. This breakthrough therapy, which has... Been shown to significantly reduce hospitalizations and deaths and can be taken at home, will change the way we treat COVID 19, he said, and hopefully reduce some of the significant pressures facing our healthcare and hospital systems. Pfizer has said a final analysis of the clinical trials found its drug to be 89% effective at preventing high risk people from being hospitalized, or from dying from COVID. That, I think it's fair to say, is very good news, as it could become a game-changer in this seemingly never-ending pandemic. The treatment, by the way, needs to be taken early to be effective, within five days of first symptoms, according to the FDA. Dr. David Bulwer an Infectious disease physician at the University of Minnesota said getting tested for covid as soon as symptoms occur is very necessary in order to get this treatment. He said the Pfizer drug worked better than current monoclonal antibody treatments, some of which it should be noted are no longer effective against the Omicron variant. In other year-end encouraging news, the Biden administration, with the help of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, has quietly made progress on one major pillar of Biden's presidency, that is confirming judges. When it comes to getting lifetime federal judgeships through the Senate, Biden has surpassed what nearly all of his recent predecessors have were able to accomplish in their first year. And the class of successful confirmations is easily the most diverse group of judges put on the federal bench by any past president. In 2021 alone, Biden has now gotten 40 federal judges confirmed to lifetime gigs. Just by way of comparison, in the same amount of time, Donald Trump got 18 federal judgeships through. Obama had 12 George W. Bush had 28. The most recent president to make similar progress in his first year was Ronald Reagan, who tied with Biden at 40. And then, of course, there's the economy, which I've been banging my head on this show over and over again in recent weeks, trying uh, fruitlessly to counter the misleading media coverage about it, one of the key drivers of Biden's uh, falling polling numbers. I've been banging my head to note that never mind misleading inflationary numbers, the U.S. economy under Joe Biden has, in fact, been booming. Just today, I got a little bit of help in that argument from uh, a place you might not suspect, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. Don't believe a progressive talk radio host? Well, maybe the Wall Street favorable uh, paper owned by the guy who owns Fox News might help you pay attention to how the bulk of the corporate media have been wildly misreporting this story in recent weeks and months. Of course, to the frothing approval of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and their fellow Republicans. A booming U.S. economy is rippling around the world, leaving global supply chains struggling to keep up and pushing up prices. That is Wall Street Journal's lead today, a booming U.S. economy. They report the force of the American economic expansion is also inducing overseas companies to invest in the U.S., betting that the growth is still accelerating and will outpace other major economies. Wow, sounds terrible. We better impeach Joe Biden. U.S. economic output, they report, is set to expand by more than 7 percent annualized in the first three months of the year. That's up from about 2 percent in the previous quarter, according to early output estimates published by the Federal Reserve Bank. That compares with expected annualized growth of about 2 percent in the eurozone and 4 percent in China for the fourth quarter, Versus seven percent here in the U.S. Major U.S. ports are processing almost one fifth more container volume this year than they did in 2019. Did you know that or were you led to believe that a bottleneck at U.S. ports was a complete disaster and failure by the Biden administration? That even as volumes uh, at ports in uh, major European ports are roughly flat or they lag behind 2019 levels, the busiest U.S. container ports are leaping ahead of their counterparts in Asia and Europe in global rankings as volumes surge, according to The Wall Street Journal in Europe. Durable goods consumption is showing nothing like the boom that is ongoing in the U.S., said a member of the, of the European Central Bank's six-member executive board. Consumption of durable goods has surged about 45 percent above 2018 levels in the U.S. Meanwhile, in Europe, it's only up about 2 percent. The U.S. accounts for almost nine-tenths of the roughly 22 percentage point surge in demand for durable goods among major advanced economies since the end of 2019, says the Bank of England. Very strong U.S. demand is certainly where global supply bottlenecks began, says the head of the container ship giant A.P. Mahler Maersk. The U.S. economy will likely grow by around 6 percent, in twenty twenty one and four percent or more in twenty twenty two, the highest rates for decades, according to analysts. Strong U.S. growth momentum is expected to push the unemployment rate to the lowest level in almost seven decades by twenty twenty three, according to Deutsche Bank. Wow. No wonder the bulk of the media is reporting that the U.S. economy is a disaster. US economic output is likely to surpass its pre-pandemic path early next year while output in China and emerging markets will remain about 2% below that path over the next 2 years according to JP Morgan Chase and yes US wages are growing by about 4% a year that is above the pre-crisis trend rate compared with less than 1% growth in the eurozone So there is more from The Wall Street Journal, but you get the idea. Over at Daily Coast, Mark uh, Sumner picks up on the journal's coverage today to note, rolling into the holiday season, America is enjoying record low levels of unemployment and levels of economic growth that exceed the wildest unfulfilled promises of Donald Trump. But at the same time, CNN reports that President Biden's approval levels for handling the economy are now at record lows. The best economy in 50 years enjoys a 44 percent approval rating. The front page of Wednesday's New York Times contains nothing about the record pace of the economy. It does contain dire warnings about supply chain issues affecting Christmas gifts and what seems to be an obligatory feature on the threat posed by inflation. CNN offers up the story about Biden's bad economic ratings, but nothing on the booming economy. The Washington Post is economy free when it comes to their front page finds Sumner either on paper or on the Internet. CNN and other outlets have certainly not been slackers on the economic doom front. He writes every penny increase in the price of gasoline became a screaming headline and repeatedly outlets ran stories in which they quoted people making outrageous claims of 30 percent or 40 percent inflation without even bothering to correct those claims. There are no headlines to report, meanwhile, that gas prices are down. There are no headlines to report that America is enjoying the best economy in 50 years under Joe Biden, unless you go to the Wall Street Journal of all places. So what is going on here? Isn't the actual bad news bad enough? Thanks, Joe Manchin and Omicron, without turning the actual good news into bad news. Here to join us with perhaps a thought or two about that and for a bit of an end of year wrap up on all of this and everything else, grinding the year into dust at year's end. Is our longtime friend Heather Digby Parton, longtime blogger at her Hullabaloo blog, where she's known simply as Digby, regular contributor at salon.com, and the winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Okay, (sighs) Heather Digby Parton, welcome back to the Bradcast.
1: Thanks for having
2: me, Brad. Thank you for being had. I, uh, you know, I want to uh, get to the undeniably bad news regarding Joe Manchin and and Biden's Build Back Better agenda and uh, some of the Trump accountability news uh, that we've been uh, talking about in the last day or or so. Uh, I see that Jim Jordan is now being called in to the uh, U.S. House Select Committee. Uh, so I want to talk about that and everything else uh, that's you know sort of closing out this year with no small amount of disappointment for progressives and Democrats. But hey. Uh, what's with the corporate media? Is it just that if it bleeds, it leads? Or is it, as uh, Washington Post's Dana Milbank suggested recently, something else may be going on here? He reported on a study based on something like 13,000 stories uh, over the past uh, two years that found coverage of Joe Biden in his first year in office is actually more negative somehow then coverage of Donald Trump in his last and arguably worst year in office, you know, the year that he tried to steal a presidential election. Uh, any thoughts on what the hell is going on here, Heather? <laughs> well, I mean, I think
1: it's what we've talked about for for many years prior to Trump. Um, you know, there's this, this impulse, um, uh, compulsion, really, on the part of the of the uh, you know the mainstream media mm-hmm. uh to try and and you know make their coverage even between the two parties as if that somehow is the only fair way to portray what's going on in in our political life and you know they had been they had been uh Greeted with hostility by the right for many, many years mm-hmm. prior to that. In fact, it, back in the 1970s was when they really came up with this idea of just relentlessly hammering the media as being a liberal media and being an arm of the of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. And they worked it. I mean, it was a, it was a tactic. They admitted it. it. This was not a real. They knew it wasn't true, mm-hmm. um, but they recognized the Republicans recognized that this would be a uh, you know an excellent way to. You know what we always called i'm sure you use this phrase too was working the refs where mm-hmm. where you you know you constantly criticize and carpet the media in the hope that you know when it comes down to making a decision here and there about which way they're going to go in a story or how to do a headline that they're going to you know they're going to kind of second guess themselves and perhaps um you know not completely tell the the unvarnished truth and 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 you know kind of couch their their mm-hmm. uh you know, the the way that they tell the story so that it's more favorable to the Republicans. And it worked really well. It was something that that went on for decades. So
2: so are we doing the same thing here, Heather? I mean, you know, they they complain about the media coverage. Uh, We complain about the media coverage. Is Is it just the media doing their job and being tough on everybody?
1: That's what they would say. They would say, oh, you know, it's like, you know, this side says it's too hot and this side says it's too cold, so it must be just right you know they have <laughs> right. this idea that but that's not the, that is not how the world works you know there is such a thing as reality there is such a thing as facts there is such a thing as providing an objective to the extent possible view of what's going on in the world without resorting to this sort of, it's, it's a very kind of cheap and lazy tactic on the part of the press to think oh if i'm just as hard on these guys as i am on this guy that somehow or another that makes it fair and that means that we that we're being objective that if, is not that is not correct
2: if if That's i'm an
1: objectivity ju-
2: if I'm just as hard on uh, the guy who tried to steal a presidential right. election as I am on the guy who replaced him by trying to do the right thing, then everything is—it's all fair and balanced at that point.
0: Yeah, right. I'm doing—I'm doing my job then. Yeah, and to me, it's like uh, this false equivalence between, oh my goodness, Biden's dog bit a staffer, as yeah. if that's the same level of <laughs> of a problem as somebody like Trump inciting an insurrection to overthrow the government.
1: Exactly. They've been reaching and they, you know, and I I knew this was coming. I could and I wrote about it even before mm-hmm. the election in 2020. You know, I said, "Look, get ready." The press was very hard on Donald Trump. They really were, mm-hmm. and and surprisingly so. And and satisfyingly so in many ways because he was such an incredibly, you know, reckless, corrupt and you know in literally insane president well we should
2: say correctly so they were yes, tough on him so. because he did stuff yes. on which they should be tough
1: they they had to <laughs> cover it and it was so egregious that they they really couldn't not do it right i mean it was so so outrageous that they were forced i think in many mm-hmm. cases to go ahead and do that and you know and to their credit they have said been been very clear calling the the insurrection and the post election Nonsense of Donald Trump, the big lie. Um, but I knew that the that the impulse was going to be there afterwards to somehow or another, you know revert back to their previous equilibrium, where they could say that. And so they were going to be very hard on Joe Biden and the Democrats for trying to to fulfill their their campaign promises. I mean, because what that was, what their campaign promises were, were going going back to a, a normal politics during an era in which the press, was unrelentingly hostile to the democratic agenda. Deficits, and, you know, people have got to take their medicine, and the government can't afford it, and blah, blah, blah. That went on for years and years and years as a way they put their thumb on the scale against the democratic agenda, and I knew that this was going to come back, particularly with such an ambitious, you know, platform that the Democrats ran on in 2020. (sighs) and that's exactly what they did you know i mean and uh, you know in fairness biden did get you know a halfway decent honeymoon which is rare these days but he did uh as the vaccines were rolling out and there was kind of a sense of uh you know just relief and more importantly that republicans were back on their heels right i mean they were kind of they had trump running around you know talking about this allegedly the stolen election and perpetuating the big lie the 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 Republicans lost the Senate, which I don't think they thought they would, and that kind of set them back on their heels, but they regrouped, and they regrouped, and then the press regrouped, and the minute that, you know, this all started to fall apart with Afghanistan, and then... Subsequent to
2: that, all the economic stuff that you've you've just mentioned. Well, uh, let me, uh, you know, uh, I want to get to uh, uh, Joe Manchin and what all of this does mean for Democrats. But just to stick here on the media for one more moment, you know, our friend Eric Bollert, uh, progressive media analyst with, uh, with Press Run, he argues today that the media are failing in... Uh, Once again, uh, focusing on their old favorite Dems in disarray uh, 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 storyline, you know, with their with their struggles, of course, to pass the Build Back Better Act. While in the meantime, completely ignoring the reason that they that Democrats need all 50 Democrat Democratic votes in the first place, including Joe Manchin, is because not one single Republican is willing to join the effort in any way, shape or form. I mean, in one sense, you know, we sort of expect that now. We take that for granted these days that, you know, that if Democrats want to pass anything, they got to do it completely on their own. But that is a fairly recent phenomenon. Uh, Just as it's a fairly recent phenomenon that Republicans will filibuster every single bill that is put forward by a Democrat, even stuff that they might otherwise support. Am I uh, being too much of a whiner by noting that the really huge disparity in the way the media cover the left versus the past they seem to get on the right for so much? I mean, remember, Democrats worked with Republicans uh, last year and, and, and for years, really, on, on many of the, the, the accomplishments of Donald Trump, including dealing with the pandemic, etc. It seems like it's just taken for granted now that, nope, Republicans aren't going to vote for anything. How are Dems going to get anything passed?
1: Well, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, I mean, think about it. There's a perfect example of this dynamic. Last year, when they did the COVID relief bills, you know, they were bipartisan yep. all the way. Both yep. parties voted for them. You know, no problem. This year, it was a totally partisan vote yep. um, on the COVID, and they had to go through reconciliation for that for that yeah. for, for the the, uh, the American Rescue Plan. Mm-hmm. Because the Republicans just totally dug in their heels and you know, look, we're talking about people like Mitt Romney here, you know, our hero of, the, of Utah, <laughs> who, you know, what stood up against Donald Trump, supposedly. Susan Collins, the most concerned senator in American history. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got this, this group that, you know, they sort of fashion themselves as, well, you know, we're, not, we're, we're a little above all this, this Republican partisanship. We don't hold with that stuff. You know, all the retiring senators. You know, like Rob Portman or Richard Burr, all these guys nope. who they couldn't even come. They couldn't even bring themselves to vote for the American Rescue Plan, which was, in, you know, we were in the midst of, of you know, a global pandemic. To get and vaccines. The world was coming to an end. To yeah, get yeah, I mean, vaccines,
2: d- to get, uh, you know, uh, checks in people's pockets. To, uh, to ex- save
1: the economy. Yeah. Which basically is what happened. I mean, right. it was all that money that went flowing into the economy because of, well, I mean, earlier bills too, but this one was the one that kept us going through the year, that has... All, you know, has has made all those those statistics that you just reeled off. And at that the was and none of that was doesn't. called out.
2: None of no. that was called out. They, they it never was just said a word expected. about that. It was just expected. Oh well, <laughs> what are Democrats going to do now by themselves That's for the wh- next? No, yeah. and it's
1: more, it's worse than that, Brad. There's a gleefulness about it. Let's see what they can do. You know, let's <laughs> see, let's get them off their high horse here and right. see and see whether or not they can. You know, they can actually get anything done. I mean, there's a, definitely that kind of an attitude that you see, particularly in certain. Corners of the of the of the D.C. press corps. I mean, I used to call them the cool kids. You know, the the village, mm-hmm. and I call it the village 2.0. And believe me, you know they are they <laughs> they are just as bad in a worse way. Let's just put it that way uh, as their predecessors. This you know this group that you know Punchbowl and you know uh, yeah, the, yeah. the Politico. Yep. Um, you know yeah. whatever their morning thing is, and they you know there's this idea that you know it's the, they used to call it gotcha journalism, and and what they're doing is is that they're 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 creating this tremendous hurdle that Joe Biden has to has to jump over in order to even you know come out even yeah. in this whole thing. Yeah. I mean it's not it, forget you know actually succeeding. I mean I don't think they're even going to let him do that. They're they're saying that he's failing when he isn't.
2: I know, that's what <laughs> that's, that's,
1: that's what drives me nuts. There was, a, there was an article on CNN this, this week um, talking about how his approval ratings on the economy are worse than Jimmy Carter's, and going on and on, this big thing, comparing the two. Yep. Well, I mean, never once in the article did they mention that the reality between those two economies is entirely different. Jimmy Carter really was in the midst of a hellish... You know, they mm-hmm. called it the misery index, remember? I yep. mean, it was inflation, high interest rates, high unemployment, it yep. was everything. Yep. It's the opposite of what's I happening know. now. The Wall Street Journal called it a boom, as you just pointed out. So, you know, this is, if you don't tell these stories in context, you're basically sort of, you know, reaffirming the idea that, well, there must be something to it. Look at old Joe Biden. He's worse than Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Which, you know, he's mean anyway. But, you know, just it, it's completely non-factual.
2: So let's talk about uh, the last time we had you on, Heather. It was back in October, and I look back at our conversation, uh, and I, I headlined it that day when I posted the story, Our Mansion and Cinema Trying to Kill the Bill. Uh-huh. Talking about the Build Back Better agenda. Now, at the time, at least it sure seemed like it to me. So here's my question How about now? Should we, <laughs> should we, no, there's a real question. Should we take Manchin at his word that he is a no on the Build Back Better uh, agenda? Uh, or is this just another Joe Manchin drama queen moment to get the attention and to get the leverage back onto whatever it is that Joe Manchin may want to do at any particular moment?
1: Well, I mean, I had been one up until this point who said that said, you know, let's just sit back and let this thing unfold. These mm-hmm. are difficult. You know, this is sausage making. It's never easy. Let's just see what happens. But I have to say that after this this announcement that he made, you know, last weekend, um, that I'm pretty convinced that the bill, as currently constructed, is probably dead. I, I just cannot see how they can how they can, you know, get back. To where they were, which means, you know, there's going to be battles in the House, there's going to be battles in the Senate, if they want to revive some parts of it, which, from what I gather from, you know, reading around, you know, the, the, the news and the various analyses, is, is a possibility that some of the elements of the bill uh, are retrievable, and maybe Manchin will sign on, maybe Cinnamon will sign on, who knows, and then you've got to worry about whether or not, you know, progressives want to sign mm-hmm. on, and God knows who else, but that the idea of this big reconciliation bill uh, to do something particularly on climate, which is so vital that it makes my head explode, the idea that they yeah. would just let this go, that hopefully that there's going to be some movement to do that. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've talked to Dave Dayan recently. You know, he's the executive editor mm-hmm. of the American Prospect. He's you know, a guy we, we mm-hmm. know personally. Um, yep. He wrote a big piece in the New York Times uh, a couple of months ago. Sort of actually, you know, promoting that idea of simplifying the bill into, uh, you know, two or three big chunks uh, that are fully funded for 10 years, including climate. And I think I can't Mm -hmm. remember specifically what was in the in his his his. Uh, yeah, was it was possible. like child
2: tax credits and yeah. climate and uh, something uh, expansion of healthcare of, of yeah. some sort. I can't remember what it was. Something
1: like that. Yeah, and then yeah. Ron Wyden has come out with the same thing. So I mean, these these are these ideas are coming from credible people with with you know great progressive credentials that that can come forward and say hey look you know let's just talk about this in a different way and we'll have to go back to the drawing board and maybe put together a different sort of package and dane's argument was very smart which was that he was just saying look you've got to if you want to do this sort of thing you can't a overpromise, which is perhaps a legit criticism I'll, i'll i won't make that judgment but that's what he said but you know, it's also that you've got to you've got to actually deliver some things that are big and that are sustainable and that are most importantly understandable. And a lot of the programs that were in Build Back Better were very complicated, kind of bureaucratic, you know, messes, largely because of the uh, having to try and accommodate people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to try and make it fit into whatever their, you know, their their, mm-hmm. the, you know requirements were. Well, if so, they
2: have any, yeah. I if, mean, if they, they have, have any on, real on ones. On a given
1: day, yeah, on correct. a Thursday as compared yeah. to a Friday. But, you know, <laughs> whatever. They were dancing as fast as they could, trying to accommodate these people, which is why it's so funny that poor Joe is out there whining now about how, oh, they were so mean to me, and, you know, I just couldn't take it anymore. It's, like, you know, it's
2: pathetic. Right. Let me do this, yeah. uh, Heather, because uh, I will point folks towards your article on that, how Joe Biden lost Joe Manchin, and how he Can Win Him Back, uh, which also cites our friend uh, David Dayen uh, that's over at Salon. I'll cite that when I post today's show, but let me do this because I'm running along. Let me take a quick break. Come back because I want to get into, uh, we'll only have a few minutes to get into some accountability questions and to some uh, year-looking-forward questions. Stand by Heather Digby-Parton of Salon and, of course, Hullabaloo. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyan and myself, thank you.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of The broadcast. We'll be back soon.
2: All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with Heather Digby Parton of Salon.com Heather, I've got just a, a very few minutes here because there, as usual, is so much news all at once, but according to a, a bit of a bombshell from the New York Times this week that sort of got buried in all of the uh, justifiable concerns about Omicron before the holidays. Uh, the investigators uh, for the House Select Committee probing the January 6 attack on the Capitol and Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election—they're now looking into whether a range of crimes were committed, including two in particular: whether Trump and his allies obstructed Congress by trying to stop the certification of electoral votes. And whether there was wire fraud by Republicans who raised millions of dollars off assertions that the election was stolen, despite knowing that the claims were not true. Now, presumably, the House committee has a lot of documents uh, from insiders, um, you know, who may be talking amongst themselves, admitting that, you know, hey, we know this fraud thing, uh, this election fraud thing is not true, but we can raise a lot of money off of it. That would be fraud. That would be a crime. Uh, At least that seems to be the case the House committee is making. Now, the Times notes that congressional committees themselves have only the power to make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. They can't actually indict. It would then be up to the DOJ to take action or not. So, Heather uh, A., Uh, Doesn't this underscore the question of where the hell is Merrick Garland and the DOJ on all of this already, that it takes a a congressional committee to bring out these facts? And B, will criminal referrals from Congress, if they actually, you know, uh, send them to the DOJ, will that uh, actually kick the Garland and the DOJ into gear to actually do their own probe uh, that it seems like they should have been doing for the past year?
1: Well, I don't know about whether or not they're doing a probe, or if they're not, why they're not doing a probe. It seems to me obvious that that should be part of the whole insurrection thing. We know that they are doing a great many prosecutions, and they're they're and the interesting thing about this is they're prosecuting the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol. But they're using this same uh, law. In fact, they've tried it out on a number of the insurrectionists, and so far, it's held up in court. Mm-hmm. The, the The law that I'm speaking of is this one that says obstructing Congress mm-hmm. and stopping an official, um, you know, an official an gathering, official
2: proceeding, yeah. Pre- official proceeding,
1: yeah, official proceeding, yeah. And that is very interesting because it's never been used in this particular way before. It's never used by Congress, and there is some question as whether or not Congress and fits the definition of official meeting, you know, the electoral count or whatever. But so far, the DOJ has been using that. And what we don't know yet is whether or not there is knowledge between the committee Mm -hmm. in in the Congress and the DOJ about using that in both cases, right? Because the committee just recently, just a week before last, Liz Cheney came out and quoted the the language of that of that yeah. law yeah. and she applied it to Donald Trump yeah i know, you know? Uh, so you know that is i think that that is a very interesting thing and it indicates to me that maybe they are i shouldn't say they're working in tandem because they wouldn't do that but there's there is a knowledge between the two of them the DOJ and the congressional mm-hmm. committee mm-hmm. that they're not necessarily stepping on each other's toes and as a result one is sort of doing one thing and one is the other with the knowledge that they're kind of gathering Like the committee's coming from the top down, Mm -hmm. and the DOJ's going from the bottom up, and they're using this same process to try to get to these prosecutions and kind of looking at maybe putting some of these people at the top. People like maybe Jim Jordan, which I think would be more beautiful than I could ever (laughs) imagine in my life. Um, so anyway, that, that's you know I'm not sure about the DOJ, but I, I'm thinking that maybe there's more to it than we can see. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but um, yeah, you that's know, what, how it looks to me.
2: and and I keep asking uh, you know folks from uh, Free Speech for People who have who have uh, called for the resignation of Merrick Garland because he's not holding Trump accountable. I keep asking, are you sure? Do you know? Because if they do the uh, investigation properly, we really shouldn't know right. that they're investigating it. Uh, they seem. Pretty Pretty confident that they're that they're not. Uh, I guess the question now is, will the House committee? I mean, if they actually send them referrals, criminal referrals, how that cannot uh, sort of force their hand? I can't imagine. But uh, Heather, two more quick points here as we're running out of time. At the end of the year, uh, I've argued that the walls are closing in on Trump, and I don't know if it's going to be the New York State or or Manhattan uh, uh, DA's uh, bank tax and insurance fraud and racketeering investigation that's going on, whether it's the Fulton County, Georgia, DA's investigation into Trump's attempted election fraud conspiracy or whatever comes out of the probe of January 6th, but one or all of those probes, I believe, are going to result in a criminal indictment for Donald Trump himself. That's my opinion. So my question, A, do you agree? And the bigger question, if that happens, does that make it less or more likely that he will, in fact, (laughs) run for president in
1: 2024? Uh. I agree with you that it's definitely a possibility. There's an awful lot of irons in the fire all Mm -hmm. over the place, Mm -hmm. and it seems likely that something could come up. And B, I think it will make him more likely to run for president, and I think the Republicans will back him even more strongly. More likely. Yes.
2: Wow. I
1: think that this is, you know, this feeds into their sense of grievance. They're looking, to, they're going after him. It's a witch mm-hmm. hunt. Here they go again, and they love that stuff, you know?
0: Oh, wow. yeah, they make a lot of money off of that, especially when they run it through their right wing media echo chamber. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I've. Uh, I've been dubious about the fact that he's going to run again in 2024 because I think he actually hated the job, even if he loved the power uh, and, and that he would be indicted by then. But I think it's quite possible you might be right, Heather, that if he is indicted, that just gives him more reason to run so he can complain how <laughs> oh they're they're out to get me to, to keep me from uh, they're trying to stop you from having me as your president and
0: you can't you can't uh, imprison I guess or put on trial a sitting president right. according to the uh, mm-hmm. DOJ opinion that everybody disagrees with. So the with, quicker
2: he can get back in the safer he is there you go uh, Heather there's also the good ish news that I'm still sort of cautious about uh, today that Omicron for for reasons not yet understood is is burning itself out. Quite quickly in places like South Africa and elsewhere, almost as quickly as uh, it exploded there in the first place and and now is exploding here. Obviously, Joe Manchin and the Biden agenda is a concern, as is, uh, you know, Manchin and Sinema's unwillingness so far to reform the filibuster, to reform voting rights and election law in order to save democracy itself. So with all of this set, as the year wraps up, where are you? Is this a is this a temporary bunch of bumps in the road uh, that that, uh, you know, or or does it doom Democrats and democracy itself in 2022 and beyond? Do you see any light in the year ahead?
1: I I wish I knew. I mean, I would love to think that they're going to somehow eke out some voting rights legislation. But let's face it, that's not going to solve everything either. You know, I mean, that's that's at best a stopgap measure. Hopefully they do it, but I don't know. And honestly, I think the next year is going to be very, very tumultuous, and I think that we are in for more of this kind of churning i think we may look back on 2021 as being at relatively calm by comparison um (laughs) you know i mean hopefully not not the
2: answer i wanted to hear i'm sorry but i mean we're going
1: into an election year with a bunch of you know freaks (laughs) (laughs) i don't know know what to i don't know what to say and you know and we're still in the midst of this pandemic which hopefully Hopefully, if nothing else, that will have – I heard Dr. Fauci say this, this week that, you know, he's going – saying, is it going to be this bad next next winter? And he goes, no. He said there's just there's too much – the disease will be endemic by that point, and it will just be part of our – the fabric of our lives. So, I, you know, I mean, that's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's better than what we have, right? So maybe that's the, the light at the end of the tunnel.
2: Okay, I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Heather Digby Parton, uh, of course, you know her as Digby over at her blog, digbysblog.net, otherwise known as Hullabaloo. You can also find her uh, several, many times a week over at salon.com and on the Twitters at digby 56 Heather, uh, thank you for everything over this past year. Thank you in advance for everything next year. I hope that uh, you and yours have a safe and healthy holiday, uh, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you on the other side.
1: Thanks so much for having me. You guys have a great
0: holiday. Thank you. You too.
2: Okay. We're going to get there, right? (laughs) We're going to get to the end of the year and beyond it. Yes, we will. Somehow. We'll get there. All right. Uh, Forward. Thank you. Moving forward. Um, Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to everyone for tuning in today. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at TheBradBlog.com. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.